Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Professor of Psychological Science and Africana Studies, Eric A. Hurley. Welcome, Eric. It's it's good to see you, um, even if it has to be in cyberspace. <laughs> um, so how uh, how are you? How have you adjusted to life and teaching in the time of coronavirus? Uh, hi, both. Nice to see you both, uh, Mark and Patty. Um, you know, it's it, it is what it is. Um, I kind of like the fact that I can, you know, be ready to teach within 10 minutes of opening my eyes. <laughs> I'm one of the people who got shifted to 7.30 in the morning, um, which I hoped might, you know, I was like, oh, maybe I'll get less kids. That'll be easier. It didn't work at all. Uh, <laughs> so I, I packed the coffee machine in the night before, wake up, turn it on, and then I'm ready to roll. Uh, that's that's the main adjustment I made is that I set up the coffee before I go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Important. First things first. Okay. <laughs> and uh, we have to tell our listeners about your background. You have a, it, where, is it a theme park? Is is a video of a theme park? Oh where, yeah, your your Zoom background. Yeah. Yes. Is that uh, what you use for your classes too? I, see the, <laughs> yeah. I actually have an array of them. This one is from Knott's Berry Farm. It's one of their rides, the cliffhanger. And my daughter's actually on that. But I also have the bees. Um, one with the, uh, I took it the Children's Museum in Pasadena. That's not what it's called, but um, Kids Space, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they have a beehive. So I made a video clip of bees walking around years ago. But then I was like, oh, that's good for Zoom. Uh, if my students aren't participating enough, I threaten to send my pretties to their home to convince them. Now that's a way to engage them. Yeah, that works. Uh, Eric, uh, we're going to take you back. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your early years? What were you as a as a child? What were you interested oh. in? Um. Oh, that's interesting. Um. I always wanted to be a cartoonist when I was a kid. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, I used to, even in high school, I used to write political cartoons Mm. um, and, uh, I don't know, my first job falling there. My first job was my friends. Oh, you, yours. Go ahead. I, my first job was as an editorial cartoonist. Oh, is that right? Yeah. The newspaper, I, and I had a syndication around the state of Arkansas. (laughs) Nice. Very nice. Um, when you read them now, do you, are you delighted and, and, and do you, Oh, well, there, you're like, Woo. it's a dying art. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's a completely dying art. There used to be um, hundreds and hundreds of, of editorial cartoonists in this country. And now I last count was like 20 or something like that. It's, oh, wow. It's, there, are, there are more editorial cartoonists working in Iran than in the United States today. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it, it's, it's going the, the way of the dodo. Oh. So maybe I made the right choice. Huh? Yeah, me too. I, that was that was I, I that was what I wanted to do with my life. I, it's lucky I didn't. Yes, yeah, so I'm still a fan of like Aaron Madruder. So anyway, I interrupted you. Go ahead. You, you wanted to be a cartoonist. <laughs> um, yeah, I used to be want to be a cartoonist. Um, I was always a bit interested in psychology before I even knew what it was, um, and then I, when I thought you had to be a clinical psychologist. I actually was disinterested. Um, I, I thought I, that would be a lot. <clears throat> and I would, I would, I, I always felt like if I, if I had to do it professionally, then I would stop being a good listener for my friends and family. And I thought that would be too much. Um, so, but then I found out about the scholarly path and I was like, Oh, now that I can do. Right. Um, and I think that happened when I was an undergrad. I kind of skipped my, you said childhood and I skipped. Um, I don't know. That I was counts like, as well, early years. That's okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I was a happy-go-lucky kid, though. Um, sorry, that was so off guard. I'm like, did I have a childhood? <laughs> 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 
No, this is great. My my dad, who passed when I was very young, had been a lawyer. So I spent a lot of time being told that I would be a lawyer, um, which people meant well. I think they meant what they meant was that, you know, you can go places, kid. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but I was never at all very enticed by the law field. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, has its place. It just wasn't for me. Um, and so I think there was a time when I was looking, not just cartooning, but I, I studied journalism and advertising. And as, a, as an undergrad, um, I found that interesting. Um, I was drew. Um, I, I one time and somewhat still aspire to write fiction. Um, and in college, I took a bunch of courses. Um, and grad school, actually. So my path, I, I always think of myself as uh, you know, we, we teach our kids now to be so sure so early. And I, I, and I don't do it as much because it feels false to me. I, I always, mm -hmm. I had a very wandering path and I think it was mostly good for me. Um, now the reality of what it takes to get into colleges and you know, all these programs is that being focused is a benefit for that. But I think as a thinker and a human being, the sort of Renaissance path is really, really valuable. Um, yeah, talk to us about how you how you uh, came to Pomona. Uh, Pomona. So I finished grad school at Howard, and whoop whoop, um, <laughs> which you know I guess people would know as an HBCU. Um, and uh, my first job was for a nonprofit education foundation called Success for All, um, and in my mind it was a postdoc. Um, but then when I started looking at other places, people kept asking me, but why did you leave the academy? And I was like, wait, I didn't mean to leave the academy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's how it was viewed on my CV. So then um, I, I did a postdoc to reestablish myself in the academy. And that's when I was at uh, Teachers College Columbia. Um, and I did a, a the minority postdoctoral fellowship there, um, which was good for me. It was short and it was like 2001, New York, right as the 9-11 stuff happened. Um, like literally, I'd moved to New York about a, two weeks before or something. Um, but anyway, that's, uh, so that got me back in the door of the academy is really all I was saying. Um, and, and I'm telling the longer version of this because I think it's Jermaine, I bounced around a little bit. So I did that postdoc, then I did a visiting position at Smith and another visiting position at UMass. Um, and then while I was at UMass, um, is when the Pomona opportunity came up. Um, and, you know, I wasn't thinking about moving to California. Um, and actually I had some offers on the table, but I was very impressed when I came out here, um, both by the, 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 the actual climate um, and the facilities, but also the people and the way that I was uh, treated on my visit. Um, you know, I, I turned down some prestigious schools to take Pomona which, you know, is a prestigious school, but I wasn't in the know. You know, these, this, this is a kind of prestigious that if you come from a certain background, you might not be aware of. Um, I always tell the story that I applied to the Pomona job because the description looked like such a great fit and I had never heard of the place. But I was like, wow, it looks like they really are looking for someone like me. So I guess I'll apply to that. <laughs> um, and then when I got the first call, um, I was like, oh, I guess they're interested in me. I better do some reading on this place. And I was like, holy crap, that's a good school. <laughs> I should try and get that job. Um, and yeah. Um, so yeah, and then I got here and, you know, it's been a good fit for me. Eric, you teach uh, both in psychological science and Africana studies. How do, the, how do those two academic areas uh, intersect in your research? Um. They're, they intersect very nicely um, because I have the freedom to, uh, to sort of choose what I study. Um, so I, I like to think of psychology as sort of my methodological orientation um, and Africana as my sort of philosophical and topical orientation. Um, there's strength, uh, there's, you know, hard parts about being joint appointed, um, but the, the parts that I appreciate the most is that um, you know, when I'm talking to psychologists, they get what I'm doing methodologically, but sometimes like at the very basic level, I have to describe the fact that African-American people have a culture 
um, that has integrity and sort of really basic stuff about blackness and black people. Um, but then again, when I'm talking to my Africana colleagues who understand that very well, methods are just not in their wheelhouse. So I'm able to have both kinds of conversations and by that gain some depth um, uh, in the way that I think about the stuff that I'm interested in. Um, so that's the thing that I appreciate about having a foot in, in two departments. Um, oh, and as it's reflected in my research, yeah, I study primarily peoples of the black diaspora, um, increasingly globally. So, uh, you know, we have studies now in, um, in uh, blank, <laughs> sorry. Uh, we, we've recently done some <laughs> studies in South Africa. Uh, we have some data from Ethiopia, Ghana, um, also in uh, uh, Costa Rica and Ecuador. Um, so I've started to really turn the lens. Oh yeah, I'm from Ecuador. Sorry, I'm wrong. Oh nice, I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> she was and, raising uh, roofs here. <laughs> and it's partly pursuing the question, right? So I began mainly studying African American populations, and I still study the uh, African American populations because I care about like the outlook of African American and other marginalized kids. Um, but one of the sort of philosophical theoretical questions is: we make the argument that African American culture is a heritage culture of the African cultures from which we're descended, um, but there's not a lot of documentation of that. So I've actually set a chart to say, well, let's see what we can do. Let's see if we can find any evidence that it is or is not true that our cultures are uh, derived from heritage of these origin cultures. Yeah. So that, that's one of the sort of critical and fun ways that I think of my joint appointment manifesting in my research. You've also done, um, Eric, you've also done a lot of, of work in cognitive development and education. Um, tell us how you, what sparked your interest in those areas? Oh, that's an easy one. Um, <clears throat> I always, I was, I always felt some kind of way about kids that I knew and I could tell were really smart, smarter, smarter than me. And it was also evident in fifth and sixth grade that their life wasn't going to go well um, or didn't seem likely to. Right? I understood that while we might both be African-American, because I came from the Northeast and so my speech patterns were more Northern. Um, I come from a low income background, but my grandmother was a teacher. So I knew how to perform in school. There were kids that I knew, and I, you know, I could name names, but I probably won't, but like, who, like, I could just feel in my interactions with them how smart they were, and I could watch them be treated differently in school and have their schooling being going differently, so much uh, differently than mine. And I, I, you know, not maybe explicitly, but I understood that it was partly because of the way that I spoke right, and the way that I had learned to perform because I had teachers in the family. And so I knew how to make the teacher like me. Um, and, you know, not least, you know, I'm like a curly haired kid, right? So phenotype matters. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, mostly I, my predictions were right. right? I, I watched kids, you know, go down a path that they were so much better than, I mean, you know, better is a weird word, but I, ho I hope it means uh, mm -hmm. you understand what I'm trying to say there. Um, and so that was always something that stood out to me um, enough that by the time I was first doing a research project, I, I was interested in that. Uh, like, mm -hmm. what, what's happening that so many people are not having access to the bright futures they could be capable of? Um, yeah. yeah. Eric, you've said that um, all learning takes place during social interactions. Um, what develops from these interactions and what does it reflect from social or, or our cultural settings? Um, well, credit where credit is due. Uh, Lev Vygotsky said that. <laughs> um, I say it too, but you know, with, my <laughs> with quotation um, marks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, meaning, um, and uh, it's, you know, I, I teach about this in, in at least one of my courses. Um, we sometimes think that learning happens, you know, in some abstract way, or it's telegraphed from a teacher to a student. Um, but the, the truth is, even you in a textbook, or you in a map, or you in an object, 
is an inherently social kind of interaction because someone made that object, someone wrote that textbook, someone created that map. And so um, what, I, what I've often argued is that we've missed that so much more than the content is carried in those social interactions, right? So much about the culture and the priorities of the culture in which we're existence, existent, and importantly, how that culture views us is carried there too, right? Yeah. And so uh, if you are a person that the culture defines as less than or marginal as is otherwise, that tends to be present in the classrooms you're gonna sit in, in the, the, the campuses that you're gonna walk around in, you know, and when you go to the post office, right? Because once learning happens in social interaction, we realize learning is happening always, right? So now you go to the post office and now you go to the mall and all of that is helping to construct your understanding of the world. Um, and to the extent that you're, you know, not included or seen as a marginal or a less than member of that, that, you know, is what you learn. I'm always saying kids always learn. Every single kid learns voluminously. The only question is whether they're learning the things that we would like for them to learn or that we say we would like them to learn. Um, and, and that's a separate thing. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, and I mean, I, I'm fascinated by this and the sort of the importance of cultural values in education, the importance of teachers understanding cultural values that aren't necessarily their own. Uh, sure, sure. Um, we, uh, so I think, you know, this is sort of launching off of the, the idea of all learning being in, in interaction and, and therefore reflecting the dynamics of that interaction. Um, and so where you have a teacher who comes from one sort of mindset and, and their own sort of cultural uh, learning about how the world is, um, and then they're being asked to serve kids who come from a very different background, you immediately invite the possibility of a mismatch or a conflict, right? When it's best, people are both open-minded, you know, we give the adult more responsibility in the situation than the kid for obvious reasons, but you know, people are both open-minded and you find some common ground and then you build upon it. Like that's literally what social culture, sociocultural theory is. Um, this idea of scaffolding. In order for us to even have this conversation, certain things have to be in place so that we can understand. You know, at the most basic level, yes, we are all speaking English. Um, if I don't speak English, this thing can't happen, right? Um, uh, and then, and by the way, there are variants in the English as we speak that cause problems in schooling um, that we're not so deaf, adept at, at navigating, um, both for sort of uh, ESL, but also English first language speakers who speak another version of English, another dialect of English. Um, and then there's the Hey, what what is what my understanding as the teacher of what the ideal student, how the ideal student presents themselves when they walk into that room, right? How do they go visit their friends or do they go right to their desk and sit with their hands folded, right? Neither of those behaviors is inherently good or bad, except as I, the authority figure, deem so. So if I think the fact that you had the nerve to go and say hello to Jeff and Patty before you went straight to your desk, Mark then I'm already going to discount your presentation, yeah. right? And then that can influence the way I perceive the things you do after that. Um, then it, you know, it also infused, it's infused into the materials that I present to you, right? So I may be trying to teach you fractions, but how those materials are configured will also interact with my perception of how that ought to be done and someone else's. We just uh, published a study this year. When did it come out? Uh, I think it just came out in a couple months ago. Um, where we had kids learn fractions. We either had them learn it in a sort of group, work together, help each other context with teachers who were trained to do that. This was like actual classrooms, real teachers. Um, and some kids were taught, you know, uh, taught, given the math lessons that way. And others were given it in the more traditional sort of sit down and mind your own business and don't help each other way. And sure enough, we found that the African-American kids did much better who were able to share and collaborate and build those concepts as groups and as teams and, and aid one another. Um, that's huge um, because, uh, you know, I probably should have said, it's well-documented that African-American culture is characterized by communalism, right? This idea that we have a shared destiny and we should help one another, et cetera. 
Um, and the social components of that importantly, right? That, you know, people get energy from interaction and, and are good at thinking in, in, in dialect and dialogue with others. Um, and, but most of our schooling is designed to squash that as much as possible, right? You are supposed right. to be independent and you are supposed to do it on your own. Otherwise, how can I know what you did um, and who did what? Um, and so you're putting these kids at an instant disadvantage by not leveraging the tools of their culture, things they're good at, toward their education. Yeah, and it's just seen as disruptive, right? I mean, that's the, the yeah. It's cheating, it's disruptive, right? Meanwhile, you could choose to leverage it to their benefit, right? Mm -hmm. But we mostly don't. And it's, and it's I, you know, on my best days, I say it's out of misunderstanding, Right. Um, and, you know, what, what follows in the misunderstanding, though, is often the denigration. These kids don't know how to sit still. These kids don't want to learn. These kids are they're only interested in socializing. But you know what we find? And this is what that study found. You know what? If you include the interactive part of learning in there, they thrive. They want to learn fractions unless you're going to purposely make it torture for them. Right. Yeah. By, by, you know, a not letting them use what the things they're good at. B, punishing them if they try to use the things they're good at, and B, forcing them to not only learn fractions, but to learn fractions in a way that is culturally unfamiliar and maybe you've even been taught is not how to be a person, right? Where you can't even talk, you can't help your neighbor who clearly might be struggling. Um, and so we create extra hurdles um, by not being aware and attentive and open to other ways of doing things. I mean, I think that, uh, uh, we're really good at assuming, right? There's a cultural arrogance that goes along with anyone who has completed a certain amount of schooling that says, this is how I did it. It's obviously the right way because look how I look how good I am. I'm a teacher now um, and not acknowledging and, and I'm not even fighting it. The way you did it, if it worked for you was awesome. Um, but doesn't mean there's not other ways, right? And that's what I mean by openness to what people bring to the table in terms of talents and skills born of their culture. It's hard for people to step outside their their cultural values, isn't it? I mean, that, it, that that sort of defines their universe in a lot of cases, and it's hard for them to to separate that from the world around them. Indeed, but it's their job, right? <laughs> it's their right. actual job, <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. Is to you know, if 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 all you had to do was stand up there and say what you know, that's not teaching. That's just mm -hmm. I don't know what that is. Um, your job is to connect with the students and help to bring them along. Um, yeah. Uh, and so I think, uh, yeah, I could say a bunch of things about how people choose not to be open to their kids. I think, uh, you know, a certain amount of it is people's reluctance. Um, I think a certain, you know, to, to do a little extra. Right? It's hard. It's not easy to yeah. go outside yourself and to learn something new, um, especially when you've been credentialed already. Um, the credential supposedly says you know how to do this. Um, and in some situations, perhaps you do. Um, but, you know, teaching is a profession for a reason. It's supposed to be adaptive. You're supposed to be able to figure out, you know, it's a problem solving. I think of teaching, even my own teaching, as problem solving, right? I've got this group of humans, and I've got to figure out for each one of them, as best I can, how to, to bring them along in their understanding of whatever it is we got together to, to learn together. Eric, I'm kind of dovetailing into this conversation. You, you push back against the idea that there's oppositional culture um, mm. in African-Americans. Can you unpack that for us? Um, sure, sure. So um, there's this thesis that uh, also known as anti-intellectualism, and it's not even limited to African-Americans anymore. Uh, we actually have this as an idea, as a nation, that people don't want to believe in being smart and, and learning and uh, <clears throat> et cetera. Um, as, it, as it relates to African-Americans and education, yeah, this idea that African-American people don't value schooling, aren't interested in learning and cognitive, you know, learning to be the best that they can, um, and so therefore inherently dislike school. Um, to me, that's preposterous on face, but because I'm a scientist, I study it also, right? And we find no evidence that 
African-American people don't see value in education, that they aren't interested in their kids, their aspirations. There's lots of data indicating, yeah, in fact, most families, if you ask them, would love for their kids to go beyond college, not just to college, but beyond college into masters. They understand at least the narrative of this nation that more education equals more possibilities, right? And, you know, it's slightly more complicated than that, but in a basic way, there's some truth in it. Um, and, and, and people aren't denying that, right? So then uh, there's this one uh, author who says, we call it the attitude behavioral, uh, I just lost the word, the attitude behavioral paradox, that's what it is. Uh, because like, oh, if they want education and they believe in education, why aren't they trying harder at education? Um, and so this is where sort of my arguments around culture are nested. What it means for an African-American kid, uh, particularly at certain kinds of schools to try is so vastly different or can be so vastly different than what it means for a European American student because for the European American student, the minute you hit the door, you were already assumed to be a good and competent student, right? And you could try to mess that up. It's actually hard to mess that up. You get lots of chances, et cetera. The case is very different for many minority kids who, you know, the minute they hit the door, the first thing they do, which is go greet their friends, already sort of differentiates them. And I'm saying these are cultural things that get miscoded as misbehaviors, inappropriate behaviors, but very quickly can get kids into categorized as uh, 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 not the ideal student. And then there's a cascade of things that come after that, right? Suddenly as the teacher, now I have my, I have to monitor you lens on. I have to make sure you're behaving lens on. And so the things I say to you are less encouraging. They're more uh, apt to be punitive or, or uh, corrective as opposed to encouraging and uplifting. And you can imagine by the 12th year, some kids have become cynical about school as it's available to them, but that's a very different thing from being cynical about learning and education, right? So, you know, uh, uh, Jeff, if every day you showed up at work, your manager punched you in the face, you'd start to be a little less enthusiastic about going to work, but not, not necessarily about the job you do, right? <laughs> Um, there, there, there's a big distinction to be made there. And so to the extent that kids come to school and many of them face a context which sort of just continuously gives them negative messages, yes, that might dampen their enthusiasm for schooling as it's being made available to them. But the second half of that sentence is huge, right? And this is why all my work is about what are the other ways we could do schooling that would not be alienating, that would not be off-putting and marginalizing to kids so that they could come in and be their true selves and engage in their education. Let's um, let's talk about the effect of the pandemic on on education. I mean, it's it's disrupted education at all levels, but not equally. Mm. And um, so, what do you see as the impact of the pandemic on racial inequities in uh, in education? <laughs> I should have seen that question coming, but I just. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I, I might have to fast map it. I may, I may not like this response. <laughs> this might be one I say. <laughs> um, well, you know, you have the, the obvious, the sort of most surface level uh, inequities around access, right? So uh, whose internet connection and how fast it is. And, you know, like right now, my router sometimes seeming to choke up more often than I'm happy with. And then I'll just like call up and be like, I need a better router and spend that money. But so many families can't even begin to do that, right? You've seen the pictures of people sitting outside of Taco Bell to get some Wi-Fi in order to attend their classes. Um, mm -hmm. So there's all that technical stuff. Um, I also think, um, and, I, and I think this is part of a broader phenomenon, what I see happening is that educators and educational institutions are falling back to their base, right? So you have lots of schools and teachers that are at least trying prior to the pandemic to figure out what to do to accommodate different learning styles, different cultural things. Like people are at least interested in these topics uh, these days, but the minute everything had to fall back and already I'm struggling just to teach at all, you know what is the first thing out the window? whatever I was doing differently to reach those minority kids, 
right? And so now everything is back to this one size fits all. I'm sure lots and lots of courses are right back to chalk and talk and good luck out there kids in a way that is hindering kids who were already marginalized in terms of what, how they come to the table uh, of the classroom. Um, and so when you add that to those sort of technical things that are born of financial uh, stuff, you know, like Claremont Unified is, is, is generous in that they're, you know, they brought, you can have a, a, an iPad, every kid could have an iPad and, you know, Claremont can afford that, so be it. Um, but uh, I imagine, I can't give concrete examples, I imagine that there are other kinds of things that are interfering with some of the kids in a way that is really tough and certainly not yet solved um, by the district, et cetera. Um, uh, I think that's probably true. I'm certain that that's true you know, on the college campuses too. There's been lots of innovation prior to the pandemic in terms of the cohort programs and teaching special uh, uh, sections of certain kinds of courses toward accommodating diversity inclusion, um, trying to create inclusion. Um, and I would imagine that some of those things are falling away as people just sort of regress to the most basic under model of how they know how to do teaching. Um, and, you know, hopefully they will move forward on it. But in the meantime, that's another whole semester, you know, now a semester and a half of students whose needs that are not the exact same as uh, sort of the mainstream students will be unmet, right? And we know that there are cascading effects of that. Um, and I find that there's a broader phenomenon of, of, there's actually this theory called maximally maintained inequality. Um, and basically it says that institutions and people are, you know, enthusiastic about diversity and inclusion when, and, and sharing sort of resources to, to make those things happen when their own bellies are completely full, right? So it's not, accidental that, you know, Pomona has made some big and important moves toward equity in the last several years because we're kind of a full belly institution, right? Um, but guess what? Things just got hard. And some of those things are the first things being pulled back on, right? Because the minute it requires any sacrifice or substantial sacrifice to continue to do this thing that you're regarding as generous of you, suddenly the math is not working out so well anymore. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say this in a way that won't get edited out, even though I'm aware that the college, like, so I haven't said we the don't, word we don't edit things yet. Out. We, <laughs> yeah, we don't edit things out for those reasons. We edit them out if, if you ask, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but I mean, I think it bears on the sort of furloughs issue, right? We just wrote 38 diversity and inclusion and support Black Lives Matter statements. And then uh, two months, is it later? We furloughed a huge chunk of the black and brown employees of this place, right? Which is to say, it's great to be generous when your own belly's full. The minute there's any threat to your own belly being full, you let go of the stuff that you're doing out of perceived generosity as opposed to actual obligation because these things need doing and we understand ourselves as contributing to the problems ourselves. Yeah. I like what I said. It came out. Well. <laughs> I'm trying. I no, you're doing great. Hey, I caught you. By, I caught you off guard. <laughs> uh, since we're, since we're but it was a great answer, actually. Yeah. No, we're good. Um, since we're on the topic of, of the pandemic, uh, how's it? How has the pandemic affected your classes? My classes. Um, I definitely have students in variety of time zones, um, and that has some impact. Um, I mentioned that I got moved to 7.30, and uh, I'm actually adapting to it pretty well. Um, but I see that my students are reaching a weary point. All this screen time is just hard. Um, you know, it happens that yesterday was an especially hard time, so I think I spent about 70% of my waking hours sitting in front of a Zoom meeting. Um, and it, it was painful. By the end of it, I was exhausted. And then I was like, oh, good. I need to be on for my SageCast tomorrow. <laughs> um, so uh, in, in terms of my classes, um, I made some adjustments. I, 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 I dialed back some stuff that I just, in my mind, I thought would be hard to manage in the space that we're in. Um, but on the other hand, you know, 
uh, as much as I might sometimes tease the college about its brand protection during this time, um, I am interested in giving students every bit of the education that I give them when we're in person. So I, I didn't, you know, some people I think dialed it back even more. Um, I, I'm keeping my requirements pretty close to what they were. Um, and uh, I personally resisted the temptation to um, like create all these other interfaces. Like I, I, I heard a lot of stories about it. And then I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna have them go this and read this thing online. And I'm like, I, I know how I've been registering all the meetings and fora that we have. And every time someone says, hey, this other great opportunity, I'm like, seriously, you're gonna send me to sit in front of my screen another time? Right, so I actually resisted the temptation to do that uh, more, more than a very little bit because I, I recognize that there's a heaviness to sitting in front of the computer and then being sent to sit in front of the computer for both an exam and a paper. And by the way, watch these talks. Um, I think it, at some point it's it's a bit much. So um, what I, I, I trying to rely upon my ability to draw people out to use the Zoom space in our class period effectively to get them thinking and, and create good ideas. Um, you know, I'm open to change. If it, if it need be, I'll, I'll figure something else out. Um, but mostly I'm trying to use the live time, the synchronous time, as effectively as possible and not add more details or whatever. Um, and, and my students report that the, a lot of the stuff that faculty did with the greatest intention is actually making things heavier for them. Um, and so right now I'm feeling affirmed in my choices, but you know, maybe when this airs, I'll get a bunch of emails and you'll get a bunch of emails and I'll find out my classes are a disaster. Um, and, and if that happens, I'll move, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll fast map and figure something out. I highly doubt it. But yeah. We'll let you know. Yes, please. Yes, please. Uh, um, Erica, in the, in the light of the events of this year, uh, as, as both a psychologist and as a, who, who studies uh, cognitive development and as a parent um, yourself, what, what do you think parents sh can and should be saying to their children about the subject of racism? Mm. Mm. So hard. Um, <clears throat> I think that... Uh, I think a lot of parents have to do a lot of soul, the adults, a lot of soul searching. Um, I, I just, uh, I don't, I don't feel that on average people are very well qualified to talk about these things. Um, and uh, so I, I resist saying, tell your kids this, because yeah. even if you're saying the right thing, you could say it in a way that does more harm than good. Um, right, because if you read it off a website, who knows what your depth of understanding is? I think we're a nation that resists that kind of self-reflection and soul-searching so hard that it is why it continues generation after generation. Is why so many kids are, uh, 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 you know. Actually, I'm mostly impressed, though. I have to say, um, the majority of my undergrads, although I guess it could be the kind of students that I draw to to me and to my courses. Um, they have surprisingly sophisticated understandings of questions of race, um, and they very often lack some of the negative stuff. Actually, today I was doing a discussion in class, and I was luring them to what I was sure that they deep down think um, about this, uh, uh, this thesis in the literature that goes way back that suggests that, you know, Black people are somehow broken and have self uh, self-hatred issues, right? And it's pretty well debunked, um, but but I can usually catch students in it. Um, and I couldn't get them. Like they they were like, no, that's nonsense. And I was like, yay, but you're messing up my discussion, but yay. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> because, you know, I, I do this thing. One of the things I like to do in classes, I think um, people learn a thing and they instantly think they thought that all along. Um, so I usually <laughs> like to get you to write down what you think and then we talk about it so that if you had to make a change, it's plain to you also, right? Um, uh, and that's actually a known thing in psychology. When you tell people something, they, they act like, of course, that's just common sense. But if you told them the opposite thing, they would say, they'd make the same statement. Yeah, of course, that's just common sense. Um, so 
yeah, so I was trying to, you know, get them to go here before I sort of helped them transition out of it. And I was like, I actually think they don't, they're not caught in this thing that's so common in, in, in or at least once was in, in our society about this. Um, and their understanding and the way they talked about it was rather sophisticated. I was, I was impressed again, if disappointed that three of my slides were no good anymore. <laughs> and that's I a really good thing, right? The slides, right? I was happy. Um, uh, uh, sorry, did I get okay. off topic? Kind of. No, no, no you're, you're fine. Very much right. on topic. <laughs> um, as as um, you're talking about your students in your class, um, tell us about your lab and the research that you did through your lab. Sure. Um, I do want to say one thing on that last thing, though. Sure. Uh, Go ahead. Which is. Uh, and I deeply, though, hope that people take this opportunity to do some honest education. Like, if you really want to know what you say to your kids, how do you not spend a good amount of time figuring out what you want to say to your kids? <laughs> right? Being an open human being and saying, admitting that I don't necessarily understand these issues well enough to do a responsible job with my own kids. And so, you know, when you ask what your parents tell their kids, I'm like, go and find out. Right? Read voluminously. Um, uh, don't get trapped in sort of the social media versions of things because almost all of them are deeply problematic. Um, yeah. Um, and then Patty, you just asked me, oh, about the lab. Your um, lab and the work you do there with your students. Yeah, so the, the, the shop is what I call it. Um, the, the deep structure culture shop. Um, and the shop, by the way, is a holdover from the space that I'm in was once the shop. Psych departments used to actually have a building shop where they would build apparatuses for testing. Um, and so I, I, I was charmed by the history and I, so I, I keep the, I retain the shop where most people like have lab at the end. <laughs> um, so uh, we do work uh, similar to what we've talked about, um, uh, you know, looking at uh, how culture manifests in people's behavior? Can we predict how it's gonna uh, lead their performance? So um, I talked about a study of uh, communalism in classrooms and communal learning of math content. Um, on campus, I mostly do stuff with college students. Uh, there's some issues with bringing community samples into like a building as fancy, as you know, sort of formal and institutional as Lincoln Hall um, <clears throat> in a way that's less uh, gonna impact uh, college students. So some of, a lot of our field research we actually do in the schools where we can meet the students in an environment that's familiar to them. Um, and, and we do that. <clears throat> um, that's actually fun because a lot of students will uh, go back to their own high school or their own middle school where they have contacts and collect data there. Um, uh, and then we do some stuff in our lab space that looks at the same issues as they do or do not play out for college students, right? So I'm making an argument that, you know, people come from backgrounds that socialize them towards certain cultural themes. I mentioned communalism. Another one we study is verve. Um, verve is sort of one's uh, propensity and uh, tolerance preference for regarding the level of stimulation in an environment. Um, and that's actually one that's deeply influenced by the Zoom culture, if you want to talk about effects. Um, so we find in younger kids that uh, kids thrive and learn better in environments that are higher in verve, right? Where the learning environment has a certain amount of din and there's more activity and there's variety of activity and they can switch tasks, et cetera. Um, then if you tell them, you know, just come in, sit down, sit on your hands, shut up and listen, um, which, you know, that characterization is obviously inherently negative, but how we think of it is come in, Give you give me give me your whole body attention, right? That's what that's what my kids' teachers say every day. Listen with your whole body, um, and and keep still, and you know do nothing else. Um, and we find that our African American samples they learn better in the high verb context. Uh, just as a for instance, uh, kids read a story um, where the story is presented in a high verb format with reading to the rhythm. Sometimes there's music in the background. Um, and they're encouraged to move with that, right? To, to move along with the beat, et cetera. Um, and then the story itself has verb, high verb themes in it where the characters are doing more and you know, being more active and or you know, singing, et cetera. Um, and then when you look at recall and inferencing and other kinds of outcomes uh, about the story, 
the kids who learn in the high verb context, the African-American kids do better. Um, and interestingly, the European-American kids often fall apart. Like they can't take in the story while also trying to dance and keep the beat and, and you know, all this other stuff, right? So that's a cultural difference things. I always, you can't see me, but I always make this X because when the lines cross in a graph, that means you really did something, right? So it's not that I'm into undermining white kids. It's that when the graph, when I can set up a learning context that you can't handle, but the African-American kids do well in, I'm demonstrating the mirror of how schools function all day, every day, whereas the context is undermining African-American kids and benefiting European-American kids, right? And not to say one or the other is better, but that we ought to understand children for who they are and always pitch to their strengths, or at least pitch to their strengths often enough that they feel a sense of uh, belonging in the school and, and, and you know, get the affirmation that supports their enthusiasm for the learning. Um, uh, burr, 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 I was going to say something else. I forgot. Uh, oh, so it's important, those same issues, right? I'm making this argument. What happens at college? Right? Presumably, if you're still African-American, maybe you still have this culture. Or is it that after you've been through American schooling long enough, it's squashed out of you. Maybe your verve is gone. Maybe your communalism has been beaten out of you, at least as it relates to learning and school. Or maybe the selection criteria we use for these fancy schools, make sure that the, because obviously not every single African-American person on the planet is high verb or, or high communal. Maybe we select the ones who are least African-American and most European-American in terms of their culture of socialization and their orientations. Um, I'm delighted to tell you that in a series of studies, we have found that communalism persists. We, found ele we find elevated communalism among uh, African-American and, and in some studies, Latinx students on these campuses. Um, and similarly, uh, with Verve studies, we find that even though they've learned to function in these highly sort of individualistic um, and low Verve environments, they, it's still in them. And if I present them a task in a high Verve context, many students still thrive. Um, in those studies, you have to measure communalism in Verve because it's not sort of, you can't just do race-based grouping because enough of the African-American kids are maybe low communal or low Verve. But if you measure Verve, the ones who are high in Verve do better in the Verve context. Ones who are high in communalism do better in the communal context. Um, there's a 2018 paper uh, where we wrote about that, <clears throat> that group of studies. Um, so yeah, those are the things. And then I, I tend to let my students, uh, take a fair amount of leadership on the projects that we undertake. Um, so we, I treat it like a conversation. Someone shows interest. Um, first thing I do is have a brief conversation with them and then give them a bunch of stuff to read. Um, and then they come back to me and we talk about it. And if I can tell they read and they got, got something out of it and it seems something they're enthused about, then the next conversation is come start coming to lab meetings. Um, and then uh, I asked them to just for a time, sort of just be there and present and pitch in where they can. But then not, not after that much time do we then offer them the opportunity to start thinking about designing a study of their own, obviously within the broader research paradigm, although not even always that, if I'm honest. Um, uh, so yeah, so it's fun. Uh, the lab was really big last year. It's, I had a bunch of students graduate and then this sort of pandemic thing is hindered recruitment, so we're a bit smaller this year. Um, but I like it when it's, you know, seven or eight students at least. Eric, any final thoughts or projects that you want to share with us? No, I've got a chapter coming out um, in the uh, Oxford Encyclopedia. Um, not sure how to get to it. Uh, did I mention that in the, the other thing? Uh, all right, maybe I'll spill something about it and see. Um, so I mentioned that our work is increasingly taking a global lens, um, and that's both sort of in an empirical sort of, uh, empirical research sense, but also my own sort of thinking about it has been broadened, um, in part because the world is paying a little bit more attention to global education. Um, I think in important ways, for example, there's this, it's, it's, you know, it's getting on a long time ago, but there's this, uh, education for all movement where they said, you know what, what's missing in this world is there are still millions and millions of children who never see the inside of a school in their whole life, 
um, or who have extremely limited access to a school. And so this movement has said, well, that can't be a good thing. We need to create education for all. Uh, some hundred and some odd nations signed on to this effort, and it's giving nations advice about how to set up infrastructure and, and to put schools into places, and to, especially around uh, gender and other kinds of uh, issues. But this chapter that I just finished writing, which should come out any day now, um, asks us to take up these issues of culture, right? Because it's my deep fear that what we're going to do is in all these brown and black places, right? Various shades of brown and black places set up these same schools that we make that serve European American and European kids really well and do a terrible disservice to black and brown kids. And, and all the evidence suggests that that's exactly what's happening. We're setting up all these schools in the sort of template of the Euro Western mode without thinking one bit about the kids they're gonna need to serve and how those kids are likely to be oriented. So I have the, uh, a great worry that we are going to be, it's just gonna be another form of colonization and assimilation. Um, and it's going to re-marginalize or extra marginalize uh, many kids who are for the first time going into a school, but then they get there and they're being told that everything they know is wrong all their indigenous knowledges, et cetera, have no place in schooling and how you need to be is this. And if only you change enough, you might be among the ones who gain a better life for your family. And I think that would be an ethically horrendous thing to do. Any other, any other in the projects or anything else you want to add? Uh, so last night I had my very first meeting of the uh, uh -oh, DAC, diversity and well, <laughs> Can I give you the acronym later? It's the committee formed by the Claremont School District uh, to sort of improve equity in the schools here in Claremont. Um, and I, I applied and I was lucky to be selected as a group of 15 sort of parents and other members of the community, some educators, some administrators. Um, and we just started, so it's hard to say uh, what's gonna happen, but I'm excited that the district is forward looking enough to want to take these issues on head on. Um, the committee is advisory, but we're moving toward creating an action plan that will help uh, create better equity in the schools. Um, we haven't been given a data presentation yet, but, but because of when I did research in choosing schools for my own kids, I definitely know that Claremont schools, while they're generally very good, they definitely to a school underserve their black and other minority uh, kids. Where, the, where it shows in the test scores, et cetera. Um, so I'm excited about the opportunity to participate and contribute to that. Um, and especially in this particular moment where there's so much you wanna do and it's so hard to choose, I, I'm pleased that uh, I've ha I have the opportunity to sort of have this concrete way of, of helping to affect change. I sometimes worry about the whole ivory tower thing and whether at the end of my career, I'll feel like I was an enabler more than a change maker um, around these questions and issues. So this feels like a moment to help make sure that's not true. Um, yeah. <laughs> so on that note, we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, we've been talking with the professor of psychological science and Africana studies, Eric Hurley. Thanks, Eric. This, this has been a great conversation. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast at Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.